You are listening to the Classical Mythology Podcast presented by LearnOutloud.com. With this series, we will investigate the gods and heroes that form the bedrock of belief in the ancient Greek and Roman world. For a complete listing of the Learn Out Loud podcasts with links to subscribe, please visit our website at www.learnoutloud.com podcast. Thank you for listening. This is the first lecture from the Modern Scholar course, Greek Drama, Tragedy and Comedy, taught by Professor Peter Meinick. To check out this course and over a hundred other courses from the Modern Scholar series, please visit www.learnoutloud.com slash modernscholar. In this lecture, Professor Peter Meinick introduces ancient Greek drama and explains why he feels it is still so popular and powerful today. He briefly discusses the plays of four major Greek playwrights, Aeschylus, Sophocles, Euripides, and Aristophanes. He then covers what Greek tragedy and comedy were actually like at the time they were performed in Athens over 2,000 years ago. Recorded Books is pleased to present the Modern Scholar Series, where great professors teach you. My name is Paul Hecht, and I'll be your host. Today we begin a course entitled Greek Drama. Your professor is Peter Meinick of New York University. Professor Meinick is a clinical assistant professor of classics and artist-in-residence at the New York University Center for Ancient Studies and the producing artistic director and founder of the Aquila Theatre Company. Peter currently teaches in the classics department at New York University in ancient drama, Greek literature, and classical mythology. He has held teaching appointments at Princeton University, the University of South Carolina, and the Tisch School of the Arts. Fellowships include the Harvard Center for Hellenic Studies, the University of California at San Diego, and the University of Texas at Austin. He has lectured and held workshops on ancient drama and Shakespeare at conferences, academic institutions, museums, festivals, and schools throughout the world. The plays of one ancient city written 2,500 years ago by just four playwrights have had a profound effect on the development of all subsequent Western drama, not only on the theatrical stage, but opera, film, television, stand-up comedy, and dance. In fact, most, if not all, of the live arts owe a debt to the theater of ancient Greece and the city of Athens. This course will examine the social, historical, and political context of ancient Greek drama and equip listeners with a set of critical, analytical tools for developing their own appreciation of this still vital legacy. We will focus on the four extant playwrights, Aeschylus, Sophocles, Euripides, and Aristophanes, and examine four of each of their plays closely. For more information on this course, please visit its webpage at www.modernscholar.com, where you'll have access to links to related sites, a seminar room to share your thoughts with other students, and, yes, of course, a final exam. And now we begin Greek Drama, Lecture 1, Why Athens? And now, Professor Meinick. Welcome to this course on Greek drama. My name is Professor Peter Meinick, and I'm going to be your guide through what I consider some of the most important plays written in historical canon. This course is going to ask the question, why is Greek drama important to us today? What are the origins of Greek drama? 
What are the social, historical and dramatic background of these plays? Who are the Greek dramatists? What were their lives, their history, their times? And how have these plays impacted later drama and the drama of today? This course is going to look specifically at the work of 5th century drama, which, as we'll come to learn, is the main period, sometimes called the Golden Age of Greek drama, although I don't really like that term, but this is certainly the main period of Greek drama in the 5th century BCE in Athens. And it's going to concentrate on four playwrights, Aeschylus, Sophocles, Euripides, and Aristophanes. And what I've decided to do with this course is really take you on an in-depth analysis of the work of these playwrights, more than just as literature, but really what do these plays mean to the Athenians? Why were they produced? Who was watching them? What was their political background, their social background, and their religious origins? We're going to talk about most of the works of these four playwrights, but we're going to specifically look at four plays by each of our four playwrights. And these will be the plays that we'll be reading through this course. And we're going to pick on one play by each playwright to look at very, very closely indeed. So for Aeschylus, we're going to read The Persians and The Oresteia. The Oresteia is our only surviving trilogy and is made up of the Agamemnon, Libation Bearers and Furies. With Sophocles, we're going to study Ajax, Philoctetes, Oedipus Tyrannus and Oedipus at Colonus. And we'll talk about other works of Sophocles, of course, in the course of this lecture. For Euripides, the Medea, Hecuba, Trojan Women and the Bacchae. And when we turn to Greek comedy and the works of Aristophanes, we're going to have a great deal of fun with the hilarious plays Clouds, Wasps, Birds and Frogs. So the first question I have for you is, why study Greek drama? Why is it important to understand this stuff and have a detailed knowledge of it? Well, I think it's interesting to start with a question that I always ask my students. What is the meaning of the word theatre? Here's a word that we apply now to going to the cinema, seeing movies, also to the physical building that we watch performance in, and to the genre of drama itself. But what does theatre mean? Well, theatre is, of course, a Greek term. And we owe a great debt to the Athenians and the Greeks in general in terms of providing us with this form of theatre or drama. Well, theatre is from a Greek word, theatron, and it actually means seeing place, a place of sight, a place where we go to see drama, to see plays. And this is important, because as we will be studying these texts, I will constantly be trying to remind you that these plays were, as well as texts, were visual works of art. There was design, masks, costume, dance, music, blocking. There was an element to these productions that appealed to the visual sense of the ancient Athenians. And these plays were put on in a form that gave them the magnitude and the presence that is demanded of Greek tragedy and comedy. So theatre means seeing place, and we'll constantly be coming back to this idea of the visual element in ancient drama. But look at our debt to the Athenians and Athenian drama. And let's just look at some of the terms that have come down to us that have become embedded in our own culture. Drama itself is a Greek word which means simply doing or performing an action. The word scene is from the Greek word skene, which means a scene building. The skene 
seems to be Greek for tent. And as we'll study when we look at theatre architecture, the earliest form of scenery may have been a simple tent that the actors erected and changed in and then performed in front of. And of course we get the Latin word proscenium before the scene, in front of the set, proscenium, where we now get the word proscenium, proscenium arch and proscenium theatre. The word chorus, which has come to mean so much to us in modern culture, is the group of 12 to 50, depending on which period of Greek drama we're looking at, of singing and dancing actors that formed the main bulk of early Greek tragedy. And the chorus, of course, performed in the orchestra. And the orchestra was the often circular, although not always, choral performing space, which was the heart of the ancient Greek theatre. And the term orchestra has now become applied, of course, to, to our musicians. And the orchestra pit is still in the front of the stage, although not as prominent as the orchestra of the 5th century theatre. The term thespian, which has come to mean an actor, is derived from the legendary founder of ancient theatre, Thespis. More about him in Lecture 2. We hear the term Deus ex machina, the god on a machine, a Latin term that refers to the intervention of a god character on the machina, the large swinged crane that used to pick actors up from backstage and deposit them onto the roof of the scene building or into the orchestra or on stage, one of our first ever special effects and certainly used in the work of Euripides and perhaps even in the work of Aeschylus and Sophocles. The term protagonist, which has now come to mean any leading character in a novel or play or a film, is the first actor in a tragedy, the protagonist, the first arguer, the first competitor, derived from the Greek word agon, which means competition. And as we'll be learning, Greek dramas were actually performed as a dramatic competition. First, second and third prize, rather like the Olympic Games. The term Odeon, which has now come to mean uh, perhaps a cinema or a movie theatre, was a small covered theatre, and Podium is a raised platform. Just some terms that have come down to us today that are all derived from the performance of Greek drama. And we'll be using these terms later in the course and explaining them, but I think it's fascinating to see, just in terms of our language, uh, how much we owe to the theatre of ancient Greece. Why are these plays important? Well, some scholars, particularly in older works, will describe Greek drama as theatre of convention. It was, uh, there were certain conventions that the playwrights had to obey in order to perform these plays. And yes, there are certain staging devices and textual devices that these playwrights use. But let's clear our minds of all that and let's change the parameters. This is theatre of invention. Greek drama is so fascinating because... The Greek dramatists were inventing the form as they went along, and we can see these devices developing throughout the 5th century. So, for example, if Greek drama started off as choral sung performance, one actor eventually removed themselves from the chorus and began to answer the chorus, and we had the birth of acting. Aeschylus was credited with adding the second actor, Sophocles with the third actor, scenery, different use of the scene building, Euripides bringing in realism. What we have in 5th century Athenian drama is an explosion of creativity in this art form. The other important thing to understand about ancient drama is often Greek drama is seen as the origins of Western drama in particular, and certainly the dramatic form that dominates our culture today that has permeated into films, television and the live arts. But I like to see Greek drama 
more at the crossroads. Yes, certainly the idea of a play being performed in the theatre had its origins, as we know it, in ancient Greece. And there was performance and ritual existing in other cultures at other times. But what we see in 5th century Greek drama is the distillation of thousands of years of performance. Choral performance, dancing, myth-making, storytelling and ritual. So I like to see Greek drama as a crossover point, a point of transition between the ancient forms of dramatic performance, which we're going to talk about in Lecture 2, and the modern forms of dramatic performance that are still with us today. So, to a certain extent, as far as I'm concerned, the ancient dramatists pioneered the first modern theatre, and many of the dramatic forms of ancient drama are still with us today. Why else is ancient drama important? Well, if nothing else, for the sheer influence of ancient drama on later playwrights. We'll talk more about this at the end of this course when we wrap up. But let's look briefly right now at the huge influence that Aeschylus, Sophocles, Euripides and Aristophanes had on later dramatists. Well, if we look at the development of Athenian 5th century drama, this one city produced an enormous outpouring of plays, and not only by those four playwrights. We know of several other named tragic playwrights and comic playwrights. We have fragments of their plays. Unfortunately, we do not have any other complete works that come from the 5th century apart from the Big Four. But what we do know is that there was a ferment of productivity in ancient drama in Athens in the 5th century BC. And Athens was not the only place that was performing Greek drama. Megara was performing it, Corinth was performing it, it was performed on the islands, it was performed in Asia Minor. And as Greeks colonised the rest of the Mediterranean world and went out to the west, to Italy, to North Africa, to the south of France, to Spain, they took Greek drama with them just as they took mythology. And Greek drama in the 5th, 4th and 3rd centuries BCE became one of the most prominent cultural markers of Greekness. This was the way that people could collectively come together, receive their communal mythology, watch these plays, express their Greekness, express Hellenic culture. And with the spread of Hellenism throughout the conquest of Alexander the Great and his successors, Greek drama went with that spread, as did the building of ancient theatres. So what we have is Hellenic cities popping up all over the Greek world in the Hellenistic period, each city building a huge open-air theatre, expressing its civic pride through the performance of these ancient plays. What then happens is these plays have an effect on the cultures they come into contact with, particularly the Romans. The Romans were fascinated particularly with ancient comedy, the playwrights uh, Plautus and Terence were heavily influenced by the work of a 4th century BCE playwright Menander, who himself was influenced by Aristophanes. And we start to see an influence of uh, what we call old comedy, Attic comedy of Aristophanes in Roman culture. We also see uh, play readings by uh, playwrights such as Seneca, writing in the imperial period, where he's taking themed plays of the Greek tragedians and reincorporating them into Latin and performing them for an audience in, in Latin. These plays then had a secondary influence during the Middle Ages where they had a great impact upon poets such as Chaucer 
who would reinvent the themes found within Greek drama and turn them into a poetic form in Old English. And then when we get to the Renaissance, and particularly Shakespeare, we see again these classical plays coming back into fashion, being taught in schools, being translated, being devoured. In fact, one of the earliest translations of uh, any Greek play in English may have been done by Queen Elizabeth I herself, who was said to be fascinated by ancient drama, particularly tragedy. So we have an enormous debt that we owe to these plays, and it doesn't stop with Shakespeare. As we develop on into the Enlightenment, we have uh, French drama being very influenced by Greek plays. Racine is performing Phaedras and uh, writing themes based on plays by Euripides. Constantly, we have dramatists going back to the wellspring of Western drama for influence, for ideas, for theatrical devices. And then with the advent of movie making in the 20th century, we again see movie makers constantly being influenced by ancient drama. I teach a class in uh, NYU in um, classical mythology, and many of my students are film students fascinated with trying to get to the essence of storytelling. And uh, there are many, many movies, and we'll talk about this in the final lecture, that are heavily influenced by Greek tragedy, to the point where sometimes I think the movie makers are unaware of the debt that they owe to Greek tragedy, but there are various themes and motifs found within the form that have permeated into our culture. So the reason to study these plays and understand them is huge and paramount and very important. Not only does Greek drama show us so much of where our own drama comes from, throughout the ages, Greek drama has also become an expression of political unrest, social ideas, collaboration between different groups. I'm thinking of a, a famous story that Athol Fugard tells about the um, prison in South Africa during apartheid where uh, Nelson Mandela was in prison. It was called The Island. In this particular prison, the prisoners wanted to perform uh, a play that would be a protest to the way that they were treated in this prison in the 1970s in South Africa. And they were allowed a Christmas show, a, a holiday performance, where they could perform a drama. And, of course, this was supposed to be some light pantomimic type of performance. And they had the idea that they would actually perform Sophocles' Antigone, which is a, a, a play that deals with ideas of repression, tyranny, the state imposing its will on the individual. And some actors at Athol Fugard who found themselves uh, in prison had remembered the play from a production that they had done and had written down scraps of this play on, on, on pieces of toilet paper that they were circulating in secret around the prisoners. And Nelson Mandela was actually involved in, in actually performing the role of Creon, which ironically is the great tyrant in Sophocles' Antigone. This play was, was learned and remembered uh, haphazardly and was performed as the Christmas show which, which shocked the authorities in this prison and became a great source of protest and so here we can see in the 1970s in a, in a place of uh, political hotbed and tension people are reaching back to Greek drama and finding inspiration in the sheer power of these plays so we have many reasons to study these plays and to understand them and I hope that this course will give you a deep understanding and interest in Greek drama, encourage you to read Greek drama, see Greek drama, and also, when you see later dramatic works, understand the debt that they all owe to the Greek dramatic form. I should talk a little bit about my methodology for taking you through these plays and this course. 
I have a particular view of Greek drama, which is informed of, of my great love for the subject. And uh, I came to Greek drama when I was a, an undergraduate in London, and I had uh, been set up on a military career and uh, found myself at university and with a great thirst for the classics. And I remember I had a wonderful professor, Professor Pat Eastling, an expert on Sophocles, who had seen uh, my interests in the military world and was trying to tap that into classics. And she told me that I should look at the work of Aeschylus because Aeschylus was one of the greatest Greek playwrights, and yet on his gravestone, it merely says, here lies Aeschylus, he fought at the Battle of Marathon. And Aeschylus was very proud to be a soldier. And I realized very early on that there is a universal quality to ancient drama, that ancient dramatists were speaking to the polis, the demos, the people, that it worked on several levels, that this was not rarefied, elitist cultural drama. This was drama that had vitality and power and passion and was articulating ancient myths in a new way, a political way, a way that was controversial, that made people think, that was exciting. And I immediately found the work of Aeschylus incredibly exciting. And as we study Aeschylus, I'll, I'll try and inject some of my excitement for Aeschylus in particular into this course and, and why I became so fascinated with ancient drama. The other reason I think that uh, is important is, as, as well as being a, a professor of classics at NYU, I also am artistic director of the Aquila Theatre Company. And... I became so fascinated with ancient drama that I wanted to produce ancient drama and perform it and also translate ancient drama. And one of the other things that I do is, is I do translate and publish um, ancient Greek plays. And we'll be reading uh, some of my translations and some other people's translations too. I know my translations particularly well and um, I know exactly where to find references to them. And certainly you don't have to just read my translations and I would encourage people to look at other translations as well. We'll be discussing translation and different aspects of translation in this course. But um, I do have a great passion for this subject. My particular approach is to see Greek drama primarily as a performance art, not just as a text. And I think for many, many years, ancient drama was studied merely as a textual form, something that was dead, something that didn't live anymore, something that inhabited the past. My approach to ancient drama is to be rather an archaeologist of an ancient play. So if I'm to perform an ancient play to a modern audience, I have to ask a whole set of questions. And these are the kind of questions that I want you to ask as we go through this course. First of all, I want to know as much as possible about the ancient performance conditions of this play. I want to know the objective of this play. Why was it written? Who was it written for? Who paid for it? Were there any politics attached to this play? Who were the audience? What were the audience thinking? What was their political background? What was going on historically at the time? There is a, a field of scholarship that believes that ancient Greek drama can be studied in isolation. It doesn't have to be connected to what was going on culturally and historically. I wholeheartedly reject that view. Uh, and I think anybody who works in theatre knows full well that you cannot produce art in isolation. Art responds to and provokes the prevailing cultural trends. So I am fascinated with being a, a textual archaeologist, digging out these references, understanding what they mean, refusing to not understand every aspect of an ancient play and to try and bring it to life and perform it on stage. So my technique has been to actually stage these ancient plays and through staging these plays, coming to understand them.
Now, that doesn't mean that I always stage these plays in an ancient form, in masks, in costumes, open air, you know, our sort of um, traditional view of ancient Greek drama. Sometimes these plays take on a modern form, sometimes they develop into a, a different area. And we'll talk about the staging of, of Greek plays and the different ways to approach that. I think what's fascinating about Greek drama is that artists have staged these plays as dance, as opera, as theatre, as film, as avant-garde, as traditional, in all kinds of languages, in Japanese, in French, in Chinese, in African dialects. It really doesn't matter. The power of these plays shines through. And I think one of the vitality of ancient Greek drama is right now, if you're to look in your own communities, you'll probably find your local theatre company having performed Greek drama or working on Greek drama or doing a play influenced by Greek drama. No more so than the second half of the 20th century and the first part of the 21st century do we find Greek drama being performed all over the world. And I think there's a reason for that. And we'll come back to that reason later in the course. So I want to know what makes these plays tick. And I want you to have the tools at your fingertips so you too, when you read a Greek play, can apply these, these methods to understanding the drama. How do we do that? Well, the first thing we do is we have to dispel some preconceived ideas about Greek drama. And this is one of my missions. We have a view of ancient drama that has more to do with the 19th century European, northern European, German and English academic tradition than it does with the realities of performance in ancient Greece in the 5th century BCE. We see static, stiff masks with fixed expressions, larger than the human head, rigid costumes, a chorus that intone and drone, boring, monotonous, often tedious choruses telling us what's good for us with this strange Zeus-given morality. We see static, dark, central performances of actors and actresses performing these great roles. And I think, if we're honest, there is a, an attitude that a performance of Greek tragedy is something that's going to be good for us, rather like medicine we don't like the taste of. We need to go and see it, but we're not actually going to be moved. We're not going to cry. We're not going to laugh. It's not going to reach down into us and, and really touch us and affect us. There is a, uh, a classification, if you like, of Greek drama that we must fight against. Greek drama to the Athenians of the 5th century was popular entertainment. People loved it. They lined up for days to get the best seats in the house. Every Athenian citizen went to see these plays. They were incredibly important. Going to see an ancient tragedy in the 5th century BC was a cross between uh, the hottest opera ticket, the best movie, the Super Bowl, the greatest sporting event. The energy and vitality that surrounded these festival performances was enormous. And we have to try and understand the sheer power of these plays to the audience in the 5th century BC and how important they were. So we have to dig out of that vitality. So look at some preconceived ideas about Greek drama. Well, first of all, we believe that all Greek actors wore masks, which is true. These masks wore fixed expressions, which is not quite true, and we'll look at that when we study masks, and that the 
Masks had megaphone mouths to project the voice. Well, that's a myth. There are no evidence for megaphone mouths in 5th century theatre. And we have an idea that somehow Greek tragedy could not be nuanced, could not have depth, that the actors could not whisper, that the communication was very frontal and very tonal. Again, this is not true. Uh, we see in experiments with performing with masks in ancient Greek theatres that the mask is a very expressive form if used correctly. There is no need to amplify the voice because the theatres have superb acoustics. That Greek drama, as we said, is very visual and dynamic. We talked about Greek drama being a theatre of convention, and I've already said that Greek drama was a theatre of invention. The audiences never really knew what each playwright was going to do, and delighted in the different twists uh, of known mythologies, the different ideas that were presented on stage, Greek drama was controversial. Greek drama raised eyebrows. People argued about it, talked about it, debated it. We know, for example, that Greek comedy, plays of Aristophanes, was particularly controversial. For example, in Aristophanes' clouds, Aristophanes chose to present the character of Socrates and lampoon him as a sort of philosophical buffoon. Socrates was in the audience watching the performance and actually stood up and let the audience watch him in the audience, watching himself being performed in the play and kind of said in Greek, take your best shot, here I am, if this is what you think of me. And so Greek drama had a, a wonderful vitality. The audience weren't often polite. They would bang their feet, throw pistachio nuts, talk, rebel, react. Again, if you imagine high opera, a great movie and a huge sporting event, we might have the atmosphere that was created in an ancient Greek drama in the 5th century B.C. So let's try and remember that kind of energy as we dispel some of these myths through the course about ancient drama and how it's performed. We'll come back to some of the physical production of uh, Greek drama uh, later on in the course where we talk about the theatre, the architecture, the masks, the costumes, some of the stage machinery. Again, part of our research in uncovering as much as we can in these plays is to understand how they were performed. For me personally, in understanding how they were performed, does not necessarily mean that I want to stage a Greek drama as a museum piece. I've actually done that a couple of times, and it's a very interesting process to try and reconstruct an ancient play. But I think in reality, all the evidence probably gives us about 5 to 10% of what we really need to know about what watching a performance of a Greek play in the 5th century was like. And even if we had all that information... Would we really want to present that on stage today? It might be interesting, it might be a, a nice museum piece, an oddity, but I don't know that it would have the kind of vitality that Aeschylus, Sophocles, Euripides and Aristophanes intended. The reason I think their plays were invented is because they still speak to us today. I think it's an interesting experiment. I think if we want an image of perhaps the closest art form that we have today to ancient Greek tragedy, perhaps it's opera, where we have the libretto, we have the music, we have the spectacle, we have the hugeness of opera. Perhaps it's uh, watching a performance of a Japanese kabuki or a no play, uh, where we have the masking tradition, movement, music, song, choral dancing. I remember watching um, the Japanese director Ninigawa's performance of Medea performed in a kabuki no style in Japanese. Now, I don't have any Japanese, but it was one of the most moving theatrical experiences of my life. The sheer power of the masking tradition, again, theatre meaning seeing place, corresponding and connecting with the text. So I think if you have these images in your mind as we think about Greek drama, 
the hugeness and largeness of Greek drama and the fact, as we'll study, that Greek tragedies and comedies were performed in 15 to 30,000 seat open-air theatres, you begin to have an idea of the magnitude of the dramatic form that we're talking about. So what's fascinating is here we have these plays in masks, in large theatres, played open-air with very little um, technical support. And yet these plays deal with highly complex political, social and mythological themes. And we'll look at how the playwrights achieve this. And I think that one thing that we want to constantly bear in mind is here we have a marriage of text and performance. And that's very much the method of studying these plays that I like to take, text and performance. And I like to unite my knowledge of being a, a theatre professional, a theatre producer, with my knowledge as a classicist, and putting the two together and seeing what they develop. I'll give you a, a case in point. One of the great things about working with actors on Greek drama is that an actor actually has to stand up in front of an audience and perform words. And any actor worth their salt is not going to perform words they don't understand. And part of the journey in a rehearsal room that's so exciting with any translation or new translation of an ancient play is to work with that actor on really allowing that actor to imbue that performance with truth and realism. Well, I remember working on a production of the Agamemnon with an actor who was playing Clytemnestra. And what's interesting is Clytemnestra in the uh, Agamemnon would have originally been played by a man and actually may have been Aeschylus himself who played that role. Well, this was an actress playing the role and uh, she was uh, researching the role of Clytemnestra and here, as we'll come to study, is an amazing complex female character, a woman who operates in a male-dominated world through language. Everything she says is the truth, but everything she says has a double meaning. Well, there's a point in the play where it's very clear that we know the myth that Clytemnestra is going to murder her husband, Agamemnon, coming back from the Trojan War after ten years. We know this is going to happen, and we enjoy watching that tragic dance unfold. How is she going to murder him? How is she going to persuade him? How is she going to cajole him? How is she going to trick him? Well, Clytemnestra is very careful to use this wonderful Aeschylean doublespeak. But we get to a point in the play where Clytemnestra meets the messenger of Agamemnon, and she tells the messenger of Agamemnon that she's been a very faithful wife, and she knows as much about infidelity as she does of, of dipping bronze or steeping metal or forging iron. The, uh, the Greek is kalkubaphos, is the word in, in Greek. This actress stopped and said, I, I don't understand at this point why Clytemnestra is saying this line. She's been so careful that everything else has been so truthful and yet layered with double meaning. Everybody knows that she's having an affair with Aegisthus, who is Agamemnon's cousin. Everybody knows that she has been unfaithful. Why is this such a blatant lie? Well, actually, if you examine the Greek, she's not lying. She's actually using the Greek incredibly cleverly. And I had translated this play and had not seen this. And through the uh, actress demanding a truthful performance, I went back to the Greek and retranslated the line and realized that what Clytemnestra was actually saying is she based her fidelity to her husband on what her husband had done to their daughter, Ephigenia, at her sacrifice at Orlis.
And we'll be looking at that scene later on when we study the Oresteia and looking at how the Greek can be translated and the perils of translation. But that was a light going off for me because often working practically on these plays can give us some insight into ancient drama that I think is, is unique. So something I'm trying to bring to this course is something that I think is unique is this collaboration of a classicist with a, uh, a drama practitioner. And I think that's my own particular aspect to Greek tragedy, uh, to unite those two forms. I really try and honour the fact that Aeschylus, Sophocles, Euripides and Aristophanes didn't write plays, they created drama. They were dramatists, they were directors, they were performers, they were men of the theatre. They weren't classics professors, and I think we must always remember that. So with that in mind, let's look at some other tools we need as we move ahead in the study of ancient tragedy, comedy, and also satire play, and I'll tell you more about satire play as we advance through the course. We need to know something about the life and times of these playwrights. This is another aspect of understanding these plays. If we don't understand what's going on politically, then we will be at a loss to understand references, particularly in comedy, which comic plays were very, very political, but as too were the plays of, of Aeschylus, Sophocles and Euripides. In the next lecture, we will take some time to examine a brief historical outline of the main periods of Greek history. We'll look at the Greeks. Who were they? What was their society like? We'll look at the geography of Greece, because that had an important influence on ancient drama. And we'll also examine a typical day at the Greek theatre in Athens in the mid-5th century BCE. This ends Lecture 1.